Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to another edition of Heavy Live with Scoop B. I am Brandon Scoop B. Robinson, senior writer at heavy.com. It's election time. And uh, to kind of bring that forefront to where it needs to be, it's a familiar face. We got Soledad O'Brien on the Heavy Live with Scoop B show. What's going on, man? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Staying busy, staying productive, staying socially distant. What's going on? What's new? You're very busy. Same. You know, I feel like we've been in a sprint to election day and uh, and it's culminating in chaos and uh, and stress. I mean, I feel like everybody is either doom scrolling on Twitter or or just freaked out and calling everybody else to talk about how they're freaked out. Um, but I've just been working. You know, this is what we do. Just cover kind of every angle of it. And really, I think, you know, it's one of those weird occasions where. TV stations, which, you know, mostly I work for and print too, you know, they're, they're going to call a race, but of course races aren't actually officially called. Right. I mean that it's not, it, people believe it's, it's over when a TV station says it's over, but it's not. And so it's been interesting this year to see how many people are really trying to give warnings about all that can go awry considering uh, the turnout is much higher people with, you know, who are using and taking advantage of either early voting or mail-in ballots much, much higher. And so all of that is throwing a lot of, I think, the polling off. I mean, you know, polling relies on a lot of consistency and measures. So there's a lot of variables here. So I think that's just added a lot of stress to what's already a very stressful time. When I was kind of just preparing for this, I went to a a place that was familiar to me. I went to a local phone store (laughs) and we were just talking, you know, barbershop style, just about the election, the implications. And one of the things that a buddy of mine said was this election reminds him of Kerry and Bush in 2004. When you look at this election, there's a lot of differences there. Uh, Social media in its full form exists now. Um, President Donald Trump is a, is a horse of a different color, if you will. Uh, The way that he's able to characterize things and just all that's going on with COVID and more. 
do you see the comparison other than those variables? Uh, it's yes, but also no, right? Those those other thans are so huge. We're in the biggest public health crisis of the last 100 years, right? So that's a pretty big difference. Um, I think the disinformation and misinformation, often led by the president and the White House itself, is just a whole other level than what we were dealing with in 2004. Um, I think President Trump himself, both what he can command in attention and also a lot of the right-wing media uh, that follows him and, and elevates him and gives him a platform. I think that's really, really different. I think it's even different than it was back in 2004. So, yeah, sort of, but with some very, very, very big differences, I would say. And, and I think even just social media itself, as you say, right, because that all of those things I've just mentioned are kind of elevated even more on social media. So I think that's a big difference, too. When you look at, fair enough, when you look at this election, um, Okay, I use the Kerry Bush analysis, but then I look at, I guess, almost like too close to call in 2004, where it took days where people were finding ballots and just getting... Oh, hanging chads of 2000. Yes, the, the Bush v. Gore. Uh, you know, but even even though it's a little bit like that as well, in terms of the chaos, I don't think it's, it's not the same. And again, for all those same reasons, it was just a different era. And I do think social media changes the landscape very, very dramatically. So I don't know. I wouldn't say 2000. I wouldn't say 2004. Certainly not 2008. I think... What's making things complicated and a little bit scary uh, for pollsters and for people who are pundits who get shit wrong a lot, um, I, I think it's just very different. I think there are a lot of different variables. Even the fact that turnout is so much higher, well, who's turning out and whose message is resonating? You know, I think that that makes a big difference. So, no, nah, I'm just, I, I don't think it's the same. Smithtown High School's own Solidad O'Brien. I, listen, I, you and I met. Um, you spoke at my alma mater for grad school, Hofstra University. My aunt's been your hairstylist for years. Um, here you go. I'm Wendy's on the case. <laughs> I, I first became familiar with Smithtown High School. I covered a, a golfer, uh, Jimmy Yu, I believe his name was. Who they were comparing him to Tiger Woods. Um, the reason why I bring up your background with Smithtown High School is because, number one, taking a cursory look, Tell me if I get the pronunciation right. Maria de la Soldad Teresa O'Brien. Correct. Very good. You're kind of in that melting pot space where when you look on TV, you see a woman of color. You can't place it. You're Irish. You're black. You're Hispanic. Um, check all those boxes. Check, 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 check. You as a person working in media, how do you... Maybe not how do you identify with color, but how do you identify with all of those different boxes? You know, I don't think it ever, I mean, obviously I'm a woman, I'm a woman of color, I'm black, I'm Latina. So, but you know, often the way it really works in practice, right, is that you are trying to figure out what's the best way to think about your identity in a story. So how do you connect to people, right? I mean, the only time I really think about my identity is when I'm trying to figure out how to connect to somebody. So when we were doing our Black in America documentary, your aunt worked on that a lot. 
Um, you know, you're having a, a lot of times being biracial was a very interesting way in because we were often having conversations about sort of black versus white or black and white. And being biracial was helpful in that conversation. Or we did a black in America that looked at colorism. And and so that was an interesting part of the conversation. When we did Latino in America, you know, the fact that my mom was Cuban, Afro-Cuban allowed me and, and my Spanish is more like Spanglish. And I never by then I'd been back to Cuba many times, but you know, when I was growing up, I, I knew nothing about Cuba. And so I, I didn't really have a, a sense of what it meant to be Cuban. And so my take on that was very much like, wow, I was a person who was very disconnected from her Latino roots. Uh, I would never pretend otherwise. So I, I think I've always tried to bring in pieces of my identity as I'm trying to have conversations with people. During 9-11, when I was interviewing people who had lost um, their spouses, uh, Port Authority. I remember um, interviewing a woman who had five kids and she had an 18 month old. And at that time I had an 18 month old. And I just remember we bonded over um, when you have a little child, you know, they'll, they'll put their head on your, your shoulder, but often they'll bite you and you get these little bite marks in your shoulder because they like to, they're kind of teething. And we were comparing the bite marks in our shoulders, you know, so you, you try to find a way in so that you can have a conversation with someone like we, we meet in a place. And probably that's the only time I'm really thinking about identity is what's my way into this conversation and what can I bring up myself that will make this interview even better. That's fair. Tell me something. You are in a space where it's similar to, well, let me start like this. I remember turning on the TV and seeing you on NBC over time as a political correspondent. I believe you did some anchoring as well. And then you transitioned into CNN. Um, when you look at today's social media, digital climate, do you feel as though you left at the right time and you transitioned into the wild, wild west of <laughs> and owning your own set of things and network at the right time. I'm not sure that I, I did it at the right time. I do. I, I, I do believe that I am not a person who ever looks back wistfully at a, Oh, I wish I could have, would have, should have. I just, that's just not me. So I am much more the kind of person who makes good of where I am whatever happens. And I, I, I think it's actually been a big strength of mine to be able to, um, especially in the business I'm in, if something doesn't work out to be like, okay, what's plan B, whether that's a story you're on and all of a sudden something else happens, you, you move to the next thing. I, I don't get super beholden to like, no, I want this to happen. If it's not going to happen, if it's clearly not going to happen, if it's time, something has run, it's, it's time. I'm pretty good at saying, Oh, other pretty shiny thing over here. This looks interesting. What could I get out of this? How could I kind of move over here? And I've done that a lot in my career. And, and I've always done it pretty, pretty much with good results, uh, knock on wood. So I just never, I don't believe you can go home again. I don't believe you can, you know, try to recreate the past in something. So yeah, I think I made good decisions to leave when I did, but partly because I make sure when I leap, that I try to go glom on wholeheartedly into the next thing that's coming down the pike. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I've had friends who've really been reluctant about that stuff. And sometimes those departures are hard. They're always embarrassing. You know, you get fired off a show or you get moved, you know, it's never, it's never very easy. Um, but I always felt like, wow, this new thing that I've got has some very interesting opportunities 
And the minute someone hands me an interesting opportunity, I usually can make something pretty great out of it. Tell me more about Starfish. Yeah, we changed our name. We're sold it at O'Brien Productions now. We were Starfish Media when we started because our foundation is Starfish Foundation. Um, you know, it really, I started a production company because I found myself just wanting to do less of what I was being sent to do and more of the things that I wanted to do. So sometimes you're sent to do amazingly interesting projects. I travel all the time. Uh, and then sometimes you're standing there doing the 10th anniversary of John Benet Ramsey, you know, and, and it's like, that's fine. That's a fine story for some people, but I'm not interested. It's not something that I particularly wanted to cover. It wasn't the kind of story that I wanted to do. But if you're a reporter, you, you, you go and you're sent. And so I love the idea of saying like, well, maybe I can just pick the stories that I want to work on and just say no to the things that I don't want to work on. And it's been a really wonderful opportunity, both to focus on the things I want to do, but also I think to be able to work with people you want to work with, to be able to try new things that you want to try. I've gotten to be in a lot of movies playing myself because I can't act only because it's just very easy um, to do it. You know, I play myself. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it's just been, I think it just opens up a door to trying new things and doing new things if you are up for it and saying no to the things that you're not all that interested in. But also I've been doing, you know, I've been at my career for 26, 25 or 26 a year, like for a long time. And I felt very ready to kind of make a turn and start owning some of my own content. We had a pretty good library that I got to take with me when I left CNN. And I think now as I look at our political coverage and I, I find the media so frequently disappointing in it, I'm really glad. My husband used to always say, he's like, if you were there, you'd have to quit because you'd be losing your mind. And I think that's really, really true. When I hear you talk about your library and walking, it sounds like a, a, a rap, an independent rapper leading <laughs> masters from Def Jam. You know, and well, you know what? There are analogies, right? Which is own your own stuff. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a rapper or you're a TV anchor or you're a writer or you're a painter or whatever you are, right? At some point, you need to be able to, the real value is being able to own and then leverage the things that you spent time creating. That's for any, any business. And so that was another thing, being able to, you know, it's all part of that idea of like, I want to work on what I want to work on. I want to own what I'm working on. I want to do the partnerships I want to, I, I love working in partnerships, but I want to do the ones I want to do and not the ones where I'm like, nah, this is a bit of a waste of my time. So yeah, I think that's a, an opportunity. And also I've been doing it a while. So I had a pretty good name and mm -hmm pretty good brand and I think because you know I wasn't 20 years old I was 50 years old and I think that allows you to um you know to leverage kind of what you've already built was black in America when you maybe I guess the catalyst for when you decided that you wanted to do more content creation or was there a moment before black in America that sparked it that's such a great question um uh, you know, I think when I started covering Hurricane Katrina, it made me realize that was 2005, Black America was 2008. I think I began to realize that there was this tremendous opportunity and also um, importance in the job that actually like we had a very important job that it was, I mean, at the risk of sounding like a complete cheese ball, uh, that there was like a bit of a calling to go and try to run around and find and elevate stories of people who've been kind of left out of the narrative. 
And so I think I began to really think like that could be my focus because I did that pretty well. I know some people love to have the bold face name interviews. I don't care. It, it's never been my thing. And, and you know, often someone will say to me like, well, who if you could pick anyone to interview? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm, gonna, I'm about to disappoint you because I, I don't I won't name a president and I won't say the pope and I won't say Jesus Christ. Right? I, I like interviewing regular people who've been thrust into the moment for some reason beyond their control. That's interesting to me. And those have always been fascinating interviews for me. So, um, you know, I think that that probably was the reason that I started thinking about that I had a particular voice and I think a good ability to elevate and, and hand the mic off and help tell those stories in a way that humanized and, and gave a lot of context to these stories that were often ignored. That to me was, I thought was a skill that not everybody had. Um, and I think some people do really great celebrity boldface name interviews. That's never been my thing. I just don't. So um, I think it was really Katrina. And then after that, you know, black in America, I think really reinforced that. Like there were so many interesting stories to tell about communities, black in America, gay in America, education in America, Muslim in America that were nobody you had ever heard of before, but that you could do a riveting six hour documentary on people you'd never heard of. You know, mm-hmm. usually folks like that don't get a six hour documentary. And it was pretty remarkable. And I, I think it proved out to me what I had believed that there was, that there was interest, that there was quality, that there was an ability to do these stories at a very high level. Uh, and that I was pretty good at it. Saladad O'Brien in the place to be heavy live with Scoop B talking all things politics, documentaries, and more. Um, you mentioned Hurricane Katrina kind of being that catalyst. Um, when I remember distinctly about Black in America uh, was one, one it, first of all, it felt like for my generation, where Roots was for my parents' generation, mm. go home and watch Black in America. It was a crazy time. I, we did it for nine years straight, and it really was groundbreaking. It's too bad that we don't do it now because I think this would be a very interesting time to look at issues. And listen, at, at some point, I think a lot of places, you know, they, they, they give a nod to what they would call diverse content, you know, diverse content. But, you know, Black in America really wasn't that. I think it was a, a, a deep dive into a community, and they did it very, very well. It was really groundbreaking at the time. I was such a, so honored to be part of something that was a very interesting experiment. I remember when it first started, and I believe it started at a time when Obama was first elected, like that mm-hmm. summer, 2009. And I remember when you first started started it, there was the issue with Beardgate, where basically the whole thing with uh, Dr. Gates happened again. Beer Summit, the Beer Summit. Yes, 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 Beer Summit. I was getting... Right. had been arrested. I think he was actually arrested yes. in his own house mm-hmm. uh, by the Cambridge police, the, the very famous Harvard professor, Skip yes. Gates, uh, uh, had been arrested at his own house, right? Really, I think showing people that did not matter if you were famous or you were well off, which he is, mm-hmm. or you were renowned, which he is, um, that if the police decided that maybe you didn't need to be there, uh, that they could arrest you. And he walks with a cane, obviously, and they had actually roughed him up a little bit. And so President Obama had held a, a beer summit where the arresting officer, along with Dr. Gates, got to sit down and kind of have a conversation. And it started because in his media availability, his presser, he said that he thought that the police, the Cambridge police acted stupidly. And I remember that being a thing. um, And I think it was a reminder in that instance 
that although he is of color, he is an African-American male, um, he does represent the United States. But as a black man, he understood where he came from or what he was. How do you think it would have been different now versus then had he addressed it and your programming was head on back going on now? Yeah, I think now, listen, people have had more conversations now about policing and race. I'll I'll tell you a story from that very doc. When we did Black in America, I was asked to go to the TCA, Television Critics Association. And you sit on a big stage and they ask you questions. Tell me about the doc. How did you decide to do it? How did you interview people? You know, blah, blah, blah. And at one point, someone said, so what was your biggest takeaway from this doc? I said, you know, the thing that was most interesting to me, this is back in 2008, I said about was about policing. You know, whether you talk to very wealthy black people who were in the doc or solidly middle class black people who are dropping their kids off to college or very, very poor black people who are literally being evicted on the, the very day that I was interviewing them. Mm-hmm. When it came to talking about policing, they all sounded like they were reading off a script. When my son turned 13, sometimes daughter, but usually son, when my son turned 13, I told him, if you are stopped by police, this is what you need to do, right? And I told that story. I get off the stage and my boss says to me, that's not true. This is my boss's boss's boss. He was a head of CNN worldwide. That's not true. He said, white people tell their children uh, about that with policing too. I said, you know, I think it's different. I think for white people, it's about, you know, don't be disrespectful. But I think for black people, I think black parents are trying to help their children survive an interaction. I don't think white parents think their children aren't going to survive an interaction with the police. And he said, it's not true. And you need to stop telling that story. And so I did. Because that that version, right, was so uncomfortable back in 2008. Like this idea of like, that, and that was, a, that was a revolutionary idea when I said it. Like everyone was like, wow, policing, that's interesting. And, and now, of course, we look at um, all the conversations that are happening across America, not just in black families. But I think people are beginning to really, with the George Floyd killing, really beginning, you know, people who didn't believe it was a thing, I think are beginning to understand that it is a thing. The number of corporations are having these conversations because their employees are affected is huge. So I I think that that's really changed dramatically from when I first was working on Black in America, that, that there's much more insight and also more people have phones and there's much more social media to post that stuff, et cetera, et cetera, and all that matters. Um, But You know, George Floyd wasn't the first person to be killed and and captured on tape being killed or injured. Uh, And yet that had a huge impact. And again, I think black people knew that existed. But I think for a lot of white people, that was a shocker. 30 Rock. uh, For me, when you're grinning already, I interned at uh, 30 Rock uh, when I was in grad school. uh, And I remember actually I interned at Nightly News and also News Specials. I hated it, but I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And I remember running into uh, Tom Brokaw on the elevator and having conversations with him and meeting and having actually told Lester Holt that I hated my internship. And he's like, well, that's what you you learn what you don't like so that you know what you do like. Like, I learned a lot. But just the prestige of 30 Rock in and of itself was pretty dope. What did you learn about yourself professionally during uh, 
I love that building. It's this big, amazing, massive Art Deco. Like it's a, it's a, it's such a classic New York City building. So when you walk in, you just feel fortunate to be there. But if you work in the building, right, it's insane. Like who works in this amazing, iconic building? My first ride at Thirty Rock was with Jane Pauley, who could not have been any nicer, and. Um, and then a couple of weeks later with Gladys Knight, who had no people with her and was just going up to uh, probably the Today Show or something. And, you know, so so the elevator at 30 Rock, probably different today for security purposes, but back then was just insane, right? I mean, literally, you would just find yourself in the elevator with some famous person who was shooting SNL or the Today Show or Nightly News or any of the talk shows. Um, what I really learned, I, I learned to be a good producer there. I love producing and I, 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 I really learned a lot of skills and I found working in a big corporate environment was very helpful. Mm-hmm. I think it gives you a big stamp of approval if you can get through it. But also I think you just learn about how things get done in a corporate environment, which is very different than a small scrappy startup like we have now, or even it, you know, broadcast to cable, which for me was NBC to MSNBC or CNN. I think you just learn a lot. Uh, I also as much as I love being a producer, I knew I wanted to be on camera because I knew you got a lot more control over the narrative if you could be on TV. So as much as I love working work with a guy named Bob Bazell, who was amazing, but as, but, but as long as you were working for somebody else, right, it was kind of their vision and you were there to help them realize their vision. And until it was your own vision, until you were the face of the story, you kind of gave away a little bit of your power. So it's really where I learned the, the important nuts and bolts of producing, but also that I really wanted to be on air as a reporter and then an anchor. How often did you hit up the Magnolia's Bakery spot? (laughs) You know, when I was there, Magnolia's Bakery was not a thing. That came So, but then later I would go specifically there to go to Magnolia's Bakery. But when I was there, what was on that corner? Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, there were some good little cafes, but the food got a lot better over time. Like much, much, much better. It was never, at first, it wasn't like a hot spot for, and people would come out, but but no one thought to turn that into a restaurant-y, breakfast yeah. type thing. Magnolia's is You cannot hate on Magnolia. I mean, that's just literally eggs, flour, sugar, and, <laughs> and, and creamy frosting. It's amazing. On the go food, um, for working professionals and yeah, you go into the gym later that night to work it off. You, um, when I look at, uh, your time at NBC and then your transition to, um, CNN, um, I mean, when I look at talking heads, I feel like for me, just observing, um, nine 11 kind of heightened that process, opinionated cable news, 24 hour, um, you look at people in Afghanistan and Iraq when you'd ask a question from the studio in America, it took like 10 or 12 seconds for people to shake their head and hear it. To me, I feel like the internet was that next transition. What's next? Oh God. I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm the one who's great at picking those things. I've tried to be good at leveraging them when I've had an opportunity. I think I do well on social media. I think i I've learned to leverage any platform that I get to be on, but I I don't know. I really don't. Um, Certainly user created and user generated stories has been very, very huge. And I I don't even think it was done 
to the degree which it could be done until TikTok got on the scene, right? I mean, YouTube is great and amazing, but but really TikTok has has changed the entire game, and um, and that's been pretty fascinating. So I I don't I don't know I don't know that I would know that. Well, Real Sports with Brian Gumble had some features with you um, that I think gave you a diverse look, if you will. Um, I kind of feel like it was the reverse Jamel Hill. You did hard news, field reporting, and then you dipped your toe into the tub of sports and just the politics. I love that show. And the reason I love that show is because, you know, it's not really about sports, right? Real sports is not about sports. Real sports is a prism through which you look at the world. And it happens to be about sports, but you don't need to know anything about sports to like the show or report the show. Literally, there's no, there's nothing. If you're interviewing a soccer star, there's no prep about the rules of soccer. If you don't know them, you don't need to understand like, Hey, how did this team do over the last three seasons? You know, what, what position are, you know, how poised are they to, to win the championship? It's, it's usually about the human condition, right? It's usually a story about what it's like to be a human being told through the prism of this thing where it's winner takes all, where, you you know, losing is brutal, where the stakes are high, where, um, you know, heroes are made. And, and to me, I find that part fascinating. It's never about, you know, what do you mean you don't understand how you score in field hockey? <laughs> you know, like, having sat through my daughter playing field hockey for a season, and I was always like, my husband and I would leave each other, like, what happened? What? Um, you know, it's never about that, which I always appreciated. I, I love the sports that I love, and I'm bored by the sports that I don't care about. It's always about human beings. And because it's about human beings, it makes every sport fascinating because it's not about the sport. You don't have to be a fan of the sport. You have to be a fan of humanity. And I'm definitely a fan of humanity. Brian Gumble. I would imagine that you, you work with him at HBO, but you've also I worked with him at NBC as well. Yep. You, you, you segue perfectly. Well, you Mr. Brian, Mr. Gumble, would you like some coffee? Mr. Gumble, I'm going to. That's how far back y'all go. When I started at when I started at and at HBO, um, someone said to me, "So you and, and Brian Gumble work together at NBC?" I'm like, "Well, I'm not sure what you'd say work together." Like, <laughs> I got him coffee occasionally because <laughs> he was on the Today Show, of course. And then sometimes the correspondent I worked with was also on the Today Show. Yes, you guys are are are, are fixtures uh, at 21 years old plus. Um, <laughs> Um, when you look at Bryant Gumble um, and his ability to do the Today Show and then go into uh, almost like, a, I guess you could say, a news magazine show uh, in real sports, um, his versatility must be a, 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 a genius. He's a genius. And you know what I love about him? He's very unafraid. He, he has the ability to make a show his, right? He doesn't go in and say, just tell me how you want it. It's always going to be, this is my show. And, and my interpretation of how we're doing this, which I've really tried to do in my own work. Like, how do I make this my show? What would Soledad O'Brien do? What makes it different? Like, why am I, I mean, it's back to what we were just talking about, right? Like, why does me being there or telling the story matter? Why does my point of view, it has to bring something. Otherwise, 10 other people could just come sit in and do it. And and they certainly could do it, but, but could everybody do it the way I would do it? And so I think that that's, the, the beauty of what individuals can bring to a thing. And I think he always did that very well on the Today Show, certainly real sports. You know, he makes that he makes that show his own. 
And, and also he's, he's got a very high standard for quality. Mm-hmm. He does not suffer fools at all, which means that everybody has to bring their A game all the time. You know, there's no half-assing it on that show ever, which is a really wonderful um, thing, I think, and, and kind of way to work. You can't half-ass it. you got to full-ass it at all times. Yeah, 100% all the time. When I, growing up, the big three on the, the, the evening news, you had Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw. Did you ever watch the three of them on split screens at the same time when you were off? No, what? there was no such thing. What split? What? I, I, I just get three televisions and plugged them in next to each other. You know, where you could see that, of course, was in the control room, right? Because they could bring them up all next to each other in a multi-screen control room. But I was very rarely in a control room at that time. I usually did morning television. So, so no, I, 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 you know, sometimes you'd see all the t- every single TV station at all times running. And then they'd also have up all the big locals. So you'd have up what was happening in New York locally, what was happening in Chicago locally, what was happening in Philly locally. Probably Miami would be there too. Um, but no, I never was a real control room producer. So very rarely. When I look at the three of them, to me, they, there was a Jordan Byrne and Magic appeal. However, um, Ed Bradley well, was the oh. uh, we want to be a journalist. Uh, the way that he asked questions is, is of why. Uh, same with Barbara Walters. Who did you grow up watching? All of them. You know, I um, uh, all of them. Uh, I thought Barbara Walters was amazing. Connie Chung. I watched a lot of Connie Chung. There was a woman in local in New York um, named Gloria Rojas. Mm-hmm. She had a very strong, I think she was Puerto Rican, and she was always like, I'm Gloria Rojas. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. Um, you know, but I, I think it, for me, you know, I, I was working in TV news when Katie Kirk started working on the Today Show. I thought she was a great role model of kind of the way she navigated her career. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then, of course, yeah, you know, the big three network anchors. I never thought the guys really related to me because I think they, they made the evening news seem very much like it wasn't necessarily a place where women would thrive. Sure. No, that's that's real. And this is this is not a man's world. This is a woman's world uh, that a man is, is gracious enough to, or, or, or play. <laughs> They, they have the privilege uh, to be in. Um, <laughs> when I look at this election, a few more questions. Um, do you do you foresee it uh, being done at night? Or no, I don't, night? I don't know. I just, I think there's so many variables in this one that I, it's going to, you know, who knows? And I know everyone says the same thing, right? It depends. It depends how close it is. That's going to hundred percent determine what happens next. If it's close, then no, but if it's not close where that, whatever the mail-in and the other ballots need to be counted, um, you know, then, then, then it won't be done. Um, but if it's, if it's, if it's close, it won't be done. If it's not close and it's a blowout, then yeah, theoretically, I think they could start realistically calling, um, calling races for, for different, um, candidates. This presidential election has the potential to have uh, a black woman uh, of an HBCU uh, university or HBCU uh, in Kamala Harris uh, as the first black woman in a political office in the office of. Uh, oh, the AKAs will be insufferable. They already, 
already, and I say this as a Delta, they already, I mean, we're trying to give them props because we get it. <laughs> vice president probably, so come on. But like constantly reminding the Deltas that she's an AKA, I don't know. It's a lot. We're going to give them their moment so they can gloat. Yeah. I'm going to give them the moment to do that, you know, because I think they deserve it, but still. Well, I grew up in a house where my mother was ski-weeing all her life, <laughs> but my godmother is a Delta, so I heard the woo-woop on the other side as well. You heard it all. You heard it all. For, as a woman, I know that, well, I know that my late grandmother, she cried when Obama won. <laughs> as a woman, does it have that same effect for you? You know, I'm a big believer uh, in that what people see and what gets elevated and put up in front of them really matters. You know, I, I do, I, I hear it all the time and people, all these young reporters will say to me, when I saw you reporting, I thought I could do that. So I, I do believe that. And so I think it does make a difference just in terms of what is becomes possible, right? Once it's done, it becomes very, very possible versus, well, no one's ever done that before. That'll never happen. So I love that. I love I love turning what is possible on its head all the time. I really do appreciate that. I'm not super emotional about those things, but I only because I recognize that there's usually hell to pay afterwards on some of this stuff. But uh, but I do think what people see really matters. And, and it's actually why, you know, I think seeing decency reflected and seeing kindness reflected and seeing non-bullying reflected and not gaslighting reflected. I think that's going to be important too, hopefully. What's next? For me, oh my gosh, we're, we, you know, coronavirus, like every production company, all of our productions stopped down right away. Kind of crazy. Um, but uh, we're back up again and starting to shoot in the field. We never really stop with the show that I do, matter of fact. Uh, I was shooting it from my bedroom for a while. And then when my kids went off to school, I was like, I cannot shoot a three camera story show by myself for both HBO. So we're in the studio, back in the studio a little bit, uh, which has been great. So it's just, we just keep working and we're very, you know, for our company, I just felt like I wanted to try to keep everybody working. Uh, we were going to see if we could get through this, whatever, however long it takes um, to the best of our ability and keep everybody working. And so far, knock on wood, we have. Working, staying busy. That's what you've been doing all day. I appreciate your time, Miss O'Brien. You have been—you're off the hot seat. This was this was a long time coming, and I'm I'm glad that you made some time for me. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. Miss me. All right, we're out of here. Election day. Go vote. And this is Scoopy Radio saying, "You bring the coffee, and I'll bring the Dunkin'." Come on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. 
Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 